Hello, and welcome to the May 2008 episode of the Harvard Medical Labcast, science that's changing your world. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs in Boston. I'm David Cameron. And I'm Alyssa Neller. And the focus of this week's episode is aging. We've got a lot going on in this episode today. We'll discuss an effort to prepare future doctors for an aging population. But first, we're going to kick things off with an interview that I had with David Sinclair. Sinclair is an associate professor of pathology here at Harvard Medical School, and he is getting under the hood of the molecular machinery that drives longevity. I wanted to ask you right off, how much do we know about the basic biology of aging, especially, you know, if you think about other things that we know a lot about, like, you know, how blood functions, other things that we know very little bit about, like the brain, where does aging stand in that spectrum? Well, aging is still very much the Wild West of biology. We've made great progress in the last 20 years finding genes that seem to underlie the aging process. But exactly why we grow old, uh, it's still greatly debated. At conferences, people still argue over what aging actually is. It's still a very active area of science. So what do we know for sure about what is happening to a cell as it ages? Well, it's a complicated answer, but in brief, it does depend on what type of cell we're talking about. For example, let's take a brain cell, a neuron. What we know is that neurons, as they get older, one of the the major things that happens is that their DNA becomes mutated over time, and probably DNA damage is a major cause of aging. The other thing that we've discovered as a field is that the mitochondria are depleted and they lose their activity. So mitochondria, for your listeners, are the power packs of the cells. And so when we're born, we have lots of active mitochondria. Little kids, you see them run around the playground. They've got lots of energy. They stay warm. Uh, But what happens as we get older is that the DNA in those mitochondria gets mutated and we lose the numbers of mitochondria in our cells. And hence, we have lower energy levels. But the other thing that's important is that losing mitochondria predisposes people to diseases like diabetes and even Alzheimer's. How would that be? As they're running down, we become more susceptible to these age-related diseases? Well, in a sense, yeah, our battery packs do run, run down. But what we're also learning just in the past few years is that mitochondria control way more than just our energy levels. They are dictators of, of whether our cells live or die. Uh, they also control our glucose and fat metabolism in very fundamental ways, there's a huge correlation between the loss of mitochondrial activity and the development of diabetes. And although we don't fully understand what the actual molecular links are, it's clear that if you can boost mitochondrial activity, you would be able to slow down, possibly uh, treat effectively type 2 diabetes, and possibly also delay neurodegeneration. So tell me about your own research into the aging process. In brief, what has your lab been discovering over the past couple of years? Well, one of the the big changes in my field, um, just as I was entering it, was the discovery that there are genes that control the pace of aging. These are genes that seem to exist in all life forms, even bacteria, and what they seem to do is they keep organisms alive during adversity. So one of the adversities that organisms face is a, a lack of nutrition or calories, and this is really interesting because 70 years ago now, we, as a field, discovered that rats and mice, when they have fewer calories, they live longer. We now think that this is because this diet invokes this anti-aging longevity set of genes. And in my lab, we study a particular set of these longevity genes called sirtuins. And these genes really seem to be very important for defending against aging, and partic- in particular diseases like diabetes and Alzheimer's. 
So it sounds like your approach is aimed more at treating these particular diseases than uh, maybe just longevity as its own goal. Yeah, that's, that that, that's absolutely right. While the aging field, typically the, the gold standard is lifespan extension, my lab's goal is really more pragmatic. It's using this technology and applying this to medicine. I mean, this is Harvard Medical School. Our goal is to improve human health and life. And if we're successful at preventing and, and hopefully treating many of these diseases that I've mentioned, we will extend lifespan. We'll extend healthy lifespan. Um, just out of curiosity, if we could theoretically ward off a lot of these age-related diseases, is there a sort of a biologically or a biological mechanism that determines how long a person could live? I mean, is there... Right, well... They, would we live well, to so 200 that, if nothing else will kill us in the meantime? Or? Yeah, well, this is also one of these debates that we have uh, in the field. Uh, my, my personal view is that we will not be seeing Methuselah lifetimes anytime soon. I think that uh, to talk about people living 200 years is currently science fiction. Uh, I think that within our lifetime and within, within our children's lifetime, we will see drugs that will treat diseases of aging and extend lifespan hopefully five years uh, ten years would be amazing, uh, but but to talk about extending lifespan at a hundred years is is is, in my view, not helpful. I don't see any way of doing that with current technology. If you could be so bold as to predict conditions that may be sort of the low hanging fruit that we might be able to treat within say a decade or so, could you hazard a guess? Sure, um, it it's not really. A, a huge guess because there are clinical trials going on right now with uh, at a number of companies based on the research in, in the aging field. So I think that the low-hanging fruit are metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes, age-associated diabetes, uh, and also neurodegeneration. But that um, looking higher up in the, in the tree, other, other fruit to be had could be uh, treating cancer and heart disease. And uh, that's also based on evidence in animals. Uh, we're seeing dramatic improvements in animal models of diseases that include diabetes, cancer, heart disease, and Alzheimer's. So I think in animals, we're already there. This is not science fiction, just a question of which of these will translate to humans and, and how soon. Okay, well, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. As David Sinclair explores the molecular underpinnings of aging in the lab, Others are working to improve care for aging patients in the clinic. This is Yvonne Ariki, and I have had a chance to speak with Harvard Medical School Assistant Professor Anne Fabini, Chief of Geriatrics at Cambridge Health Alliance, about the importance of geriatric medicine. It is the case that um, starting in 2012, um, when the baby boomers start turning 65, that in this country alone, every day, 10,000 people will turn 65. There is really this tidal wave or avalanche of older adults that's going to be really, I think, changing changing the landscape of this country in, in every way, and certainly in the way that medical care is conceived and delivered, just because of the sheer numbers. In a bid to address this gap in medical education, Harvard Medical School has introduced geriatrics into its four-year program, providing students with information about diseases of aging as well as hands-on opportunities with older adults. Well, the nice thing about the curriculum that we developed for HMS is that it's almost invisibly woven into different courses. But I wondered, how have the students received it? 
certainly the students with whom I have contact are have been very appreciative and feel that it has added to their medical education and their ability to provide appropriate care and good care to older adults. So, yeah, the, the feedback is definitely positive. To get another perspective, I spoke with two of Dr. Fabini's students. After their clinical workshop with an elderly stroke patient, Steve Porter and Alexandra Clifton chatted about their views on geriatric health. Well, I never really, I guess, had appreciated the critical importance of geriatrics as a specialty. Really before meeting Dr. Fabini, the first week of medical school, she gave a presentation to our class and she was quoting statistics about the number of people that are turning 65 and sort of how the percentage of the over 65 population is increasing steadily every year. And their, their needs as a patient population are very different. In the older generations, it's not one thing. You're dealing with sort of chronic diseases and and really just helping people live their life as, as best as they can. So bearing in mind that come old age and the high possibility of faulty hips and failing hearts, I asked Dr. Fabini whether living longer is really all it's cracked up to be. I'm interested in reclaiming the word old, really helping people to understand how great it is to be old. And I'll say that to my patients and they laugh at me and say, well, you're not old yet, so why would you say that it's great to be old? But it's an enormous accomplishment. At the end of the day, geriatric medicine will benefit us all, helping us live out our final days in the best possible health. It's um, some of the most important work there is to help a life come to a, a good end. I witnessed this firsthand at the Cambridge Health Alliance, where I spent a morning with seniors who participate in a comprehensive elder service plan, or ESP, which provides everything from transportation and meals to primary care to emergency care. Marketing director Roberta Robinson supplied some surprising ESP statistics. Well, I actually did a little research study on the members of ESP, and I found that we have four, 100 years old and older. Oh my we God. We have 24, 90 and over. 24. I was blown away by that. How old do you be? 93. Now it's time for a slice of science. We're going to zoom back inside the body and examine a bizarre type of cell death. When certain cells lose their normal attachments, they launch invasions and die inside neighboring cells. Researchers observed this process while working with human breast cells in the lab of Joan Brugge, chair of Harvard Medical School's Department of Cell Biology. Breast cells normally form sheets of tissue. When they detach from their protein-rich beds, they self-destruct through a process called apoptosis. But one astute researcher noticed that some homeless breast cells behave oddly long before showing apoptotic features. These cells push into their neighbors and hang out inside, where they either die or exit unharmed. The researchers call this entosis and say it is distinct from phagocytosis, which is the process a cell uses to engulf solid particles. Here's Brugge. In the process we've been looking at, the cells actually appear to invade into their host cell as opposed to being passively engulfed. The scientific literature is full of cell-in-cell -cell references in the context of cancer. And although these structures have been described by pathologists for decades, nobody knew how they formed. Mike Overholzer in my laboratory has gone on to define the mechanism responsible for the invasion of one cell into another, and he's identified 
a molecular motor within the cell required for this process. Brugge cautions that this discovery does not necessarily apply to all cell-in-cell -cell structures in the body. It's not clear at this point whether all processes associated with the internalization of one cell into another involves the same molecular machinery that we've identified. But it's highly likely that the discovery applies to many, if not all, of the cell-in-cell -cell structures observed in samples from cancer patients. And the next step is to determine if entosis helps or hurts cancer cells. Well, that's it for this episode, and we'd like all of our listeners to remember that age is just a number, you're only as old as you feel, and 50 is the new 40. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs, and we'd love to hear your comments on this program. Visit our podcast website at podcast.hms.harvard.edu and tell us what you think or read what other listeners are saying. In order to learn more about Harvard Medical School, our academic and research programs, and our affiliated hospitals and research institutes, visit the Harvard Medicine website at hms.harvard.edu.